0: Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghost Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and, importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when, or where, or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Well, we're back from a couple of months off, and I'm very happy once again to have with me Michelle Hanks. Michelle, for those who might not have heard your previous episode, would you be willing to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Hi. First of all, thank you so much for having me back on. I so enjoyed our conversation last time, and I'm excited to be back. So I'm Michelle Hanks, I'm an anthropologist. I studied paranormal investigators and ghost tourism in England. I've also done a little bit of work with um, psychics in New York City, and I'm a professor in the writing program at New York University. So,
0: out of curiosity, how did an anthropologist end up becoming a professor in a writing program?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. So, anthropology—I I like to think—is a very writerly field, especially especially cultural anthropology. Like, I think—I mean, we have so many like 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 think of like Ruth Bihar, right? Like these like amazing, beautiful, evocative writers. So, I've always been really interested in writing. And so, yeah, like part of it was like an interest in writing, and part of it was sort of the particularities of the academic job market. Like, I found better work in. Writing studies than I would in anthropology. So that's kind of what shaped like a, a combination of like genuine interest in writing and sort of like the particularities of the job market. So, like in my current job, like I, it's great. It, like it picks up on so many of my interests. I teach in the, the engineering school in particular. So, a lot of my work focuses on like how scientists can communicate with publics better. So, that's like a really funny, interesting kind of inverse almost of the work I've done with paranormal investigators. So, there's a lot there that I find really, really fun and exciting.
0: Do you yeah. find crossover on yeah, I- uh, from your field work bleeding into the work you do with your students
1: in so many ways. I, I know we're going to talk about doubt a lot today, but like I, I do think and write a lot about doubt. And one of the things I teach, like when I work with first year writers, one of the things you kind of want to foster is like a sense of doubt, like about text, about authority. And so in weird ways, like, I, I draw on things I've seen investigators do that foster doubt to sort of generate doubt with students. Like, is this text credible? Is this an credible argument? Like, where are you going with this? And I think, again, we're going to probably pick up on this later in our conversation, but, like, a lot of my work with the ghost hunters and paranormal investigators focus on their kind of, like, combative relationship with orthodox science. So in my work, like, we spend a lot of time, like, talking, like, how can you actually communicate with people who are interested in what you're doing, but critical or skeptical of it? How do you navigate that in useful ways rather than, like, condescending? ways or sort of alienating ways? Like, what do we do? I don't know if we have any good answers, but we talk about it.
0: Yeah. I I spent a little bit of time involved in the organized skeptic movement. And one of the things that always frustrated me was that there is a tendency to just dismiss anybody who didn't take purely natural explanations. And uh, I think that a lot of them would have benefited from hearing some techniques for actually talking to people.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really it's really fun and really interesting, right? Because these are folks, these are my students. I, I work with undergrads and grads and like they're both, they're really amazing experts in what they're doing and they're learning like such wonderful things, but there's not a lot of focus in STEM curriculum about communicating that. And like, how do you do that effectively and meaningfully? So yeah, like it's, it's, it's really fun to do that.
0: Well, I'm glad you're doing that. I, uh, I wish that as an archeology span grad student, we'd had people having us focus more on that would have improved our writing greatly. Unfortunately, we were all told to model Lewis Binford, who I'm not sure what could uh, actually write his way out of a paper bag. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> there are such good archaeological writers. Oh like, yeah, there's, there's Kent
0: Feeder. There's uh, like
1: Barbara Bender. Like she's like the most. In, like I'm like I love this. This is so engrossing.
0: Brian Fagan taught at UCSB and was a grad student. But a lot of us were told, "Ah, oh, Lewis Binford knows how to communicate." <laughs> On what planet? <laughs>
1: But I think that's so common, right? Like you become an expert in subject matter with very little regard for like writerly forms and like how to, yeah, I think that's too bad. I think it'd be great if more grad schools fostered more of that, I think.
0: So let's get into the meat of the matter. We talked in the previous episode about your work with paranormal investigators in England, but if you could give sort of a quick thumbnail of how you got involved in that and specifically why you chose England as opposed to other locations that you might've uh, done similar field work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in, in in England, in contemporary England, in 21st century England, there's been a huge boom in paranormal investigating. I mean, you can trace and like historians like Owen Davies do like amazing jobs of tracing the history of ghost belief in England. But like starting with like the Victorian era, right, it becomes kind of grounded in this engagement with science, like people want to sort of verify the reality or lack of reality of the paranormal, right, through scientific means. And so organizations like the Society for Psychical Research and the Ghost Club form, and like this era of sort of like gentlemen, psychical researchers appears. And there are legacies of that in contemporary England in a way that there aren't necessarily in places like the US. right? Like in contemporary England, there's you know there are departments of parapsychology. The Society for Psychical Research is still alive and flourishing, right? They have annual conferences, they have a journal. The Ghost Club is still alive. Like, they're like I don't know if you've read their magazine, but it's amazing. It's, it's beautiful and well-written and thoughtful. So there's this, like, legacy of sort of, like, elite, very kind of scholarly engagement with ghosts. And in the 90s and early 2000s, with the emergence of paranormal reality TV, that interest kind of spread more broadly through society once again. There are two psychologists, Anne Winsper and Steve Parsons, who did a study of, like, kind of the history of ghost groups in England. And they found that in 1995, there were about 100 ghost hunting groups in England. England. By 2006, they argued that there's an excess of like 1,200. When I was doing my research, I think there were probably about 2,000 to 2,500. So that's like a really, really big public interest in the paranormal. And that was super interesting to me because these groups were kind of blending sort of tools from parapsychology, tools from psychical research, tools from spiritualism, tools from like popular folklore, things that's seen on television. They're blending all of this together in this weird combination or exciting combination of what people see as science, of folklore, of media, all of this could stuff kind of coming together um, to try to understand the paranormal. So back when I was in grad school and trying to think about research I wanted to do, like this was really, really intriguing to me. And like there were there were, things were happening in the U.S., but because the U.S. didn't have as clear of a sort of history of psychical research and like academic parapsychology, like it, like it has moments of it, of course. Like there's the American Society for Psychical Research, but I mean that's fallen into disrepair in the last ten years in pretty serious ways. I think they just sold their their building in New York. Like I think their library has kind of like gone to the the wind almost. And so like it took a very different shape than what was happening in England. So I was kind of intrigued by that.
0: You mentioned that uh, England has the history of elite paranormal. Research, But in both your book, Haunted Heritage, and also you really mentioned this very prominently in two of the papers that you sent me, the paranormal investigators that you were working with were largely what the British would call working class, what we'd usually call blue collar backgrounded people. I'm curious, was the interest in paranormal investigation in part maybe a way of trying to show their own intellectual skills within this kind of class structure, or was there something else going on? I
1: think that could be part of it. Like, I think for many, for most of the folks who are involved in this, there was like a deep, long standing interest in the paranormal, right? Like they were deeply, deeply interested. Many folks that had childhood experiences with the supernatural that kind of sparked an interest. For other folks, they'd lost a family member and had turned to like religions like spiritualism to try to get in contact with the family member, but that was sort of unsatisfactory. So they went more towards paranormal investigating. Um, so there were like kind of motive, personal motives like that. Also, I think one important context is that in Britain, there's like a lively community of hobbyists, right? People really get into hobbies there in ways that I don't think are kind of entirely comparable in the US. If you look at like societies for genealogy in the UK, like that's maybe a comparable example. Like people get together and like, do deep dives like on family history but also like histories of communities and they're not necessarily academics or scholars or people who've attended university like they are they're also kind of working class so i think ghost hunting isn't it's not an anomaly in England i don't think like i think having this kind of deep consuming passion for a slightly esoteric topic it's it's more culturally common there than perhaps here but i do think what you're asking about class is really interesting right because one of the things that kind of sets paranormal investigating the paranormal investigating i studied in the in the 2000s and 2010s is this kind of joint skepticism right like skepticism of orthodox science on the one hand and skepticism of organized religion or even less conventional religions like spiritualism like this kind of like like an oppositional approach to both of them like both of them were seen as almost like having too much authority and as such they weren't trustworthy so there was a sense that like they were well positioned to to pursue this
0: So is it that they felt that these groups had undue authority, that they were granted authority that perhaps they had not earned? Was that the attitude? Or is it something different than that?
1: I don't know if they'd say unearned, but I think they would see them as kind of narrow-minded. Like, I think they would focus more on narrow-minded than legitimacy. Within the context of science, for instance, there'd be tons of critiques of science. Like, science is great, they would say but you don't know if you can trust the scientists. Mm. The method is great, but the people. like They almost go down this like Thomas Kuhn-style critique of science. The idea that scientists are working in paradigms, and they get so enmeshed in those paradigms that they won't look at or grapple with evidence that exists outside of them. It's interesting. Like, I don't think mo- most of the folks I worked with were reading philosophy of science, but in many ways, they were kind of mirroring things you might read in philosophy of science so you'd get a lot like oh the scientists are just too closed-minded they're in their universities the universities don't want them to do this so like they're they're closed-minded to these things that they could or should be studying like one of my informants would call scientists paradoxically like flat worlders like or flat earthers and he would like invoke this kind of myth of like columbus and the flat earth yeah you know until columbus everyone thought the world was flat scientists are like that the evidence is all around them but they won't deal with it yeah like that was more their critique of it that they were they were just so enmeshed in their little worlds that they couldn't see the bigger picture. And the same was doubly true for religion, right? Like that was Mm. they're they're just they're believers, they're naive believers. They just accept things without investigating them. The same informant would call them creaky floorboarders, like anything in the world. Yeah, (laughs) you can tell like yeah, there's a creaky floorboard, it must be a ghost. So like they had critiques for both sides of the sort of religion science spectrum.
0: So wonder we're getting anywhere in this world with all the flat earthers and creaky floorboarders around. It's true <laughs> it it makes me think of a uh years back, I ended up in an argument on the internet. And of course, when you end up in an argument on the internet, everybody loses. But uh, it was with somebody who was very dismissive of any scientific explanation regarding the origins of the universe or of life on earth. And they uh, said, well, and you know, physicists, they just say, well, the big bang happened. They don't try to explain it. They don't care about what came before. And I'm thinking at the time I was in grad school, I had friends in the physics department. This is a huge area of research. (laughs) And I kept trying to point that out. No, it's not. You don't know what you're talking about.
1: I talk to physicists. (laughs) (laughs) You don't. (laughs) I think if a parapsychologist or, you know, like physicists for that matter, were to talk to some of these investigators, they would have been very frustrated by how they perceived their work.
0: (laughs) <laughs> One of the things that was I, I found really interesting, and I believe it was in the paper, haunted objects. You describe the tendency for folks to take the existence of an object as granted because it's there, they can see it, they can touch it, but then definitely question what that object means, what's what its significance is, and you start by discussing. The fact that no two paranormal groups seem to have matching descriptions of what they encounter when they go to a particular haunted object, but then you note that uh, some of the folks you're working with would slide into this sort of intellectual nihilism or cynicism, where now you can't know anything, and the work of you know the historian or archaeologist talking about this, well, that's just their opinion, in the same way that the work of a psychic who's getting readings off it is just their opinion. Which I found fascinating, but I also wondered how did people square that with living in a world that's really built in many ways on expert opinion being able to construct things around them? I
1: think what you're describing gets at like a core dynamic I would see with multiple things. Like objects are one example, electricity is another example, orbs would be another, like like there are these things that people focus on, like, oh, is this, you know, is this music box haunted? Is it not haunted? And like then there would be all of these competing interpretations, right? Or like like or orbs are a really fun, easy example of this. So orbs, you know, they appear in photographs and like, they're like little specks and they're like one of the more mocked and contested things in paranormal investigating, right? Like I've seen skeptics literally do comedy sketches almost about how silly it is to believe in orbs. And like, there are some people who are like, oh, these are ghosts. These are little spirits floating around and we've captured them on on film. There are other people who are sort of, you know, like maybe they'll take photos and they'll be interested in them. They're like, oh, it's probably dust. It's probably moisture. And so like, because of these competing examples, it's like they never settle on one. Because of the friction between the two and like the possibility of an alternative explanation, they can never fully seem to like settle on one rather than the other. I remember the first time I met one of my main informants, she showed up with several photo albums, like, you know, like, rings and like like the kind you put family photos on in the 80s several of Mm -hmm. them full of orbs and we spent a few hours looking through them and I was thinking okay she believes in this this is really clear it's clear what it is and like she'd go through and like help me kind of discern what was happening in the orb like oh okay this one has a happy face if you see it travel across the room it slowly becomes sad and so like she was kind of teaching me how to discern like what was happening in the visual evidence but then at the end she's like but of course it could be dust it could be moisture it could be anything we don't know what this is that's the dynamic I saw play out over and over and over again right like that like for almost anything you can identify there is an alternative way of framing it and oftentimes those framings were charged so if you said that the orb is just it's a little spirit that's awfully close to being a believer to being like a as my, my colleague called it like the creaky floor border right but in contrast if you're like oh that's just moisture that's just dust are you being too scientific are you accepting things at too like too surface of a level and so like it was charged. It wasn't just like there are all of these, you know, competing theories out there. It's like, oh, but each one of them has a problem. And so if you accept one, then you're kind of you're not being as rational, as skeptical, as right minded as you want to be almost. And so, yeah, that had real consequences. I hope in my writing about investigators, I like the warmth and enthusiasm. I feel like I think they're really I, I, I like all of my informants. But you would sometimes see people kind of slip into this sense that like there's no knowledge, there's no truth. And it is kind of nihilistic, Right. I remember I was on a train with a close colleague, like a close informant, and we've been, at, we're coming back from an investigation and we're just kind of talking about history. And she's making this case that it's unknowable. And she kind of pivots to the example of the Holocaust. <laughs> and I'm like, it is knowable, right? There's evidence. We know how, but like, there's like, there was a resistance to that kind of thing that journeyed a little bit down the road to conspiracy theory in concerning ways. Like, I think that can be kind of dangerous because of course there are things we can know, right? So
0: one of the things that I find really interesting about your writing is that in addition to the fact that unlike Lewis Binford, you're actually a very clear writer, Thank you. <laughs> very readable. But one of the things that you really do bring across is that most of the stereotypes we have of the paranormal investigator are just wrong. And sometimes they're intentional misrepresentations, and other times you can kind of see where somebody might get to that, but they're just kind of wrong. So what are some of the common misconceptions or even cliches that people will hold about paranormal investigators that you found to be just incorrect?
1: So they come from a whole different set of places. When I think back to when I was doing this research, there was, you know, at the, at the time, and I think still today, right, there's like a very organized skeptical community. When I was doing this research in England, like there was like skeptics in the pub and like, I th- mm-hmm. but it seems to me that they, they have a very poor impression of, of paranormal investigators. I think they think of them as, I don't know, it runs a gamut from either like experiencing some kind of cognitive bias. It seems like some of them psychologize this experience. Some of them think they're kind of idiots but altogether pretty skeptical. I know you've, you've done work with them. Like how, how do you think, mm-hmm. how, how would you characterize how they, well, I
0: I would actually describe it very much that way. There is a very simplified view. I would often encounter regarding anybody who was interested in things like ghosts and so on, but also there was a very common idea that anybody who believed in religion was foolish, and this is despite the fact that many of these people had read, for example, a book called *Supersense* by Bruce Hood, as an experimental psychologist, in which he actually gets into you know what the biases in our minds are that cause most people to believe those, and you know the reality is those who don't believe these things we're kind of the weirdos, and there's something actually unusual about us but there was just a general unwillingness to accept that that was the case. It must be that, no, these people are uneducated or they're stupid or something of that sort, which uh, was part of the reason why I started stepping away. You can disagree with somebody's conclusions and not resort to just assuming that they're an idiot.
1: Yeah, the point you're making about How, in many ways, they are the minority in the world, in the US and globally, whatever. Like, I think that that's such an interesting, important point. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of reflection about that. No. And in some ways, that's really interesting. And in some, like, it's so funny to me because they, I think they dislike the, the ghost hunters, paranormal investigators so much, but I think they have a lot in common.
0: You know, it's funny. I, I would not have thought that until I started reading your work. And it's like, oh, wow, there, there's so much crossover in the way these people think and they don't even realize it.
1: Yeah, both groups seem to have this really deep belief, this like that the world's dis- dis- disenchanted, right? That we are disenchanted, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've read like the book, The Myth of Disenchantment, but it's this. I'm
0: actually in the third to last chapter right now. It's
1: such a good book. It is. What a masterpiece! The point he makes so well in that is that. This belief in like the idea that we're just enchanted, it's always been that. It's been a myth. It's like something we tell ourselves, like the sociologists who design this, were living at high, highly enchanted times, right? They themselves were participating in what we might deem forms of enchantment. But like both the skeptics and the ghost hunters I worked with, right, they deeply believe this, that we are, we can and we are disenchanted. And that feels like as a meta narrative, like a really hard thing to deal with for both of them.
0: One of the things I found really fascinating in this was the idea that you You've got sort of different classes of paranormal investigators. You've got the mediums or the psychics who seem to actually view it as a, for lack of a better way of putting it, a more spiritual thing. Although even there, you do know a lot of doubt with them wondering, am I just making this up? Is it all in my head or did I really have these experiences? You've got that, but then you've got the more technically oriented ones where there seems to be this desire to completely and please correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, but it seems like there's a desire to completely secularize and demagicalize the idea of ghosts and explain them in terms of physics, essentially.
1: Yes, I think that's a really fair dichotomy. And this is a problem for me writing about it because it's it's a messy dichotomy. People cross back and forth. Like, the idea of a medium in paranormal investigating is a really loose one, I've come to realize, especially since doing work with people who consider themselves psychic practitioners. There was a lot of, like, anything goes with who counts as a medium. If you say you're a medium, you're a medium, which that's that's totally fine, of course. But yeah, like, there is this dichotomy, right? Like, the mediums and the psychics, they have doubt. Like, they, they double back on themselves. But they're also, like, kind of happy to go quite a far ways into talking and thinking and experiencing. For people who are more technically oriented, it was it was a range like there were some people who were just trying to design basically parapsychological experiments to test like, okay, if there's an amplified level of electromagnetic energy, does that change our experiences? Those were the kind of two groups.
0: Yeah, well, in your paper between electricity and spirit, you actually describe some of these experiments. And again, it's one of these things where I think that most of the folks I knew in the organized skeptics movement would be surprised that some of these things were happening because there did seem to be a genuine interest in trying to root out a lot of bias.
1: Yeah, especially with folks who are really engaged with like sort of parapsychology, right? And I know parapsychology is also a little bit maligned by some skeptics.
0: Parapsychology is a messy box to open. There's a lot of actually really good research. And then there's some really strange stuff.
1: Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like things like there are things there that I think skeptics would be like, oh, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Great work. And then you read things and you're like, this is an interesting thing. It's hard to pass. And a lot of it seems to come from people with a relationship to archaeology.
0: Yeah, at some point I should probably do an episode on the crossover between archaeology and paranormal belief because there's enough there that I'm not the only archaeologist who does a paranormal podcast.
1: Yeah, no, it's yeah, no. It, it is it's fascinating, but yeah, like like I think they would be surprised by how technical some of this was and how intentionally how thoughtful some of the people were about trying to root out bias and root out root out those kinds of things. And yet, I don't know how they'd react to it. But what was interesting to me is that even folks who took this approach ended up in this place of sort of like a similar kind of doubt to what I was describing with the orbs, right? Mm-hmm. The existence, like like the fact that there's always like another possible way of framing the thing. If you do a study where you're sending like high levels of electromagnetic energy into a room and people see a ghost okay one explanation would be that it's there's a causal link there but of course they're kind of right to be like is it a causal link is it a coincidence what what's what is that but like in that moment of sort of critical thinking about it it opens up thousands of other possibilities is the electricity the ghost is that a spirit like it's like it's almost spiraling levels of possible interpretations. And so even for folks who are super technically minded, I saw that same kind of like doubt kind of like factor in, like they're like, what does this mean? I did this, I have this evidence. What is it evidence of, right?
0: One of the things in uh, between electricity and spirit, you talk about an experiment where they were doing exactly that, putting high levels of electromagnetic radiation into a room and then I should say radio frequencies, which is a form of EMF, into a room and asking people to describe what was occurring to them. And you note that afterwards, yeah, people would describe these experiences in in what seemed like some very profound ways, and then also simultaneously shrug it off as, and maybe I was just hallucinating. But one thing it made me think of was years ago, I remember hearing arguments between some very prominent religious figures and some very prominent skeptic figures. This is around the time that Richard Dawkins was uh, prominent with his book, The God Delusion. You had the skeptics on the one hand saying, well, because changes to the brain can alter people's personality, that proves there is no soul. Because if we see the souls of personality, and the counter argument was fairly consistently, or alternatively, maybe the soul is outside is something that your brain processes and transmits, and so now you're like the reason for the personality change is essentially like you've got a broken radio receiver. And I found myself thinking about that as I was reading about this experiment.
1: Moments like those seem to crop up they seemed to crop up almost weekly for me with this research, right? Like there would be these almost impasses where there's competing, competing explanations that would take you in such different directions, right? Like one would take you towards a very, a natural world with no ghosts. One would take you to this like highly enchanted world where ghosts are doing these things and acting in these ways. And yeah, when you're confronted with those, right? Like it's, it's pretty hard, especially if you don't want to like take a side, right? Like, especially if you're not like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an empiricist. I'm, Especially if you don't want to kind of stake that identity, it's hard to reconcile those things. I don't know if they're unreconcilable, but in the system, like the kind of binary system that's here, I don't know for folks that's, yeah, I don't know how they get reconciled.
0: I hadn't really thought of it this way, but you just mentioned it as a binary system and that in of itself seems sort of unique. Most of us don't deal with these sorts of binary systems in our day-to-day life. Do you think that that was something that the paranormal investigators you were working with reserved for their paranormal investigation, or was it something that they seemed to operate under with a wide range of things? Like you mentioned, for example, the people beginning to doubt aspects of history. Was the bleed over kind of overarching into life in general, or did it tend to be concentrated in specific areas?
1: That's such a good question. I can think of instances where it kind of blurs over into like issues of history, politics, to some degree. I don't know if that necessarily shaped the, like how they approach, like their dating lives, for Mm -hmm. example, I don't know if it had the same resonances, but I do think that in the approach to sort of this kind of binary thinking, right? Like there's this move towards on the one hand, assuming that nothing is stable, that nothing is known you know, that everything is worth critiquing and thinking through. I think that's something that pulls through most of their lives, like that there's a degree of broad skepticism about a whole set of things. It doesn't manifest as fully in some areas as others. And I don't know if I have a good explanation for why. Like, like, I didn't see anyone be like, oh, I'm thinking about proposing to my partner. Should I do it or should I not do it? Like, I didn't, it didn't manifest in those ways, you know, but it did around like kind of philosophical issues, like political parties, voting, Brexit. Around those things, you would see this kind of, kind of trouble This kind of doubting, but not necessarily like mundane things, even in ones where you might expect it. Like one of my informants became a very active vegan during the time I knew her. And it was sort of from this kind of questioning. And she kept trying to get other folks to kind of engage in that with her. And they weren't that interested. They're like, I'm going to have a pork roll. That's fine. (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting.
0: It sounds like it's a fairly normal reaction. I was just curious as to whether or not that was something that did have significant bleed over into other areas. One of the things that I noted in the haunted objects paper, you've mentioned a fellow named Steve who taught a class. Mm -hmm. And when he was teaching the class, he would talk about the haunted box, and he seemed very sure, you know, there's a ghost here, you will encounter it. It's quite evil. But then when you talk to him outside of that, he seemed to be much... More doubtful, and you were talking earlier about the way that uh, a lot of paranormal investigators are perceived by skeptics, and you know you can certainly look at television shows and places where people get interviewed and so on. And I wonder is some of the view of them as being very certain and being very firm believers due to a public show such as you described with Steve here, where they feel the need to demonstrate that these things are very real as opposed to they're more private within their peer group doubt.
1: Yeah, I like that as a way of framing it a lot. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a part of it. And I think that can, I think we could imagine how it stems from, from a couple of different things. For Steve, like, I think, I think he wanted to be seen as someone who's, who could credibly teach this class, right? Like, he was someone who could do this work. And so he could point to, like, this is where we're going to, you know, find the ghost. And this is an interesting thing about doing this kind of research. Like, if you were just to have one conversation with an investigator or, like, listen to them talk, like, especially if they were doing any kind of public event and talking about what they were going to find and what it looks like, a lot of the ambiguities, they're not at the, the surface. Like, they're not, they're not sharing those right away they tend to acknowledge I think many acknowledge that like are there ghosts are there not ghosts this is an open question but like I think if you were to casually interact with somebody you would get I think a skewed perspective of what their actual engagement or belief or, not, or disbelief in ghosts looks like and I, I mean I think that's probably true of a lot of people in a lot of topics also like even if you think about some of the ways scientists communicate their findings to the public right they often present them in ways that like reasonably and for good in good reason in their case obfuscate some of like the uncertainty Certainty or some of the messiness of them, so I don't know if it's dissimilar to that, but I think that's absolutely the truth. Like, if you looked at just some of my other informants, like leading a public ghost hunt, you would have a different perception of what they're doing than if you talk to them for a longer time or spend time with them or like watch them grapple with these things.
0: Well, you, you know, you put it that way, it makes me think of you know the topic of when did the Americas first become populated with humans, and you'll see archaeologists writing papers or magazine articles or appearing on. uh programs and saying, well, we know this, but the reality is that archaeologist and every other archaeologist who works in North America knows uh, the data is really actually pretty messy.
1: Yeah, I think that happens probably with a lot of knowledge, right? If you're going to talk about knowledge in a public facing way, like there's a tendency to want it to be a coherent narrative. There's a reason people would rather consume public-facing science than the kind of science you find in journal articles. It tells a better story, or like, or at least a story that's more readily understood by the public.
0: Removes a lot of the ambiguity and the fact that even a researcher who feels fairly firm in their convictions will say, however, here's the places where I could be wrong.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if paranormal investigators are intentionally or unintentionally mirroring that, um, but I think... I don't think the the parallel is accidental.
0: It seems like not having a kind of firm basis of theory from which they can draw and to which they can contribute kind of keeps them stuck. It seems spinning their wheels to an extent.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And right, because with theory, at some point you have to commit to something like you have to commit Mm -hmm. to an interpretive framework. And that's for them like the really hard thing because it's charged. You don't want to be a believer, but you also don't want to be too much of a scientist or a skeptic. And like that leaves you in this borderland where any choice you make is essentially a wrong choice, which... To me, it seems like how the doubt gets produced, right? When like neither frame, neither interpretation is truly acceptable, truly okay to be like that leaves you in this, you know, this kind of murky middle space.
0: We keep using the term doubt. You'd made the suggestion that we actually have a discussion about how scholars traditionally have thought about doubt. And I think this is a good place to do that. And that's, I think, worth doing.
1: Yeah. So I'm super interested in doubt. And so historically, right, doubt people have talked and written about doubt. Like obviously this goes back a long ways. Like there are theologians who've talked about doubt. There are social scientists who've talked about doubt, but it often tends to be seen as something fleeting or temporary. Um, something that shows up for a minute and it either leads to like belief in something or disbelief in something. This is like almost middle phase. And in my experience, that isn't necessarily how doubt works. It doesn't necessarily settle. I don't think all doubt does settle. So when I think about what I observed with the paranormal investigators, there's doubts never went away they never resolved i've known some of these people for a really long time well over 10 years at this point they're still doubtful often doubtful in new ways and unsettled in new ways like i never really saw someone be like yes now now ghosts are real i've got this um or i've never seen someone be like "Mm, this whole thing's nuts i'm not involved i think what's interesting about doubt is that it's productive right like it's I know people talk about doubt in science and how it's a way of knowing. Here I mean something slightly different, right? If you're the paranormal investigators and you are pursuing knowledge of the paranormal or the ghostly, kind of in this context of like this, you know, myth of disenchantment almost, right? Where you don't want to be a rationalist, you don't want to be a scientist, but you also don't want to be a silly believer. Doubts? Sustaining in a lot of ways, right? If you doubt something, if you're never settled, that justifies and enables you constantly seeking it out, constantly having these moments where, you know, you go into these old buildings and have these cool, haunted, spooky experiences and it enables all of that. Like, I think it does kind of generative work. And when people have thought about the generative work that doubt does in the past like for example Evans Pritchard when he was studying the Azande he observed that the Azande have doubt about witchcraft what he saw was that like the Azande might doubt like oh okay that that magician isn't totally trustworthy that that plant doesn't do what I think it does instead this magician this plant is what's trustworthy the doubt drove them to accepting or believing something else that's not what I observed here it's just like this sort of sustained state that's unpleasant in a lot of ways and kind of annoying to investigators but yet justifies their enterprise, which is, I think, I think that's really interesting about it.
0: I would agree. One of the things you mentioned that you hope that in your writing, your kind of affection for these people came across. And I will say in reading your description of how the doubt would frustrate them, but that frustration would actually cause them to dig deeper and keep going rather than to just, you know, wash their hands of it and walk away. Immediately I thought, these are the sort of people I want to hang out with, you
1: know? Yeah. I I liked all of my informants enormously. Yeah. They were delights in many ways. They remind me of anthropologists, right? There's like this, I don't know, especially cultural anthropologists are really annoying and difficult people. And I mean that in a nice way. I'm one of them. They're, they're critical of everything, right? Like there's like, Oh, we can't accept this. We can't ex-, and a good reason, but like a, there's like a criticalness to cultural anthropology and like a, a questioning kind of quality that I, it resonated a lot with me when I was doing this work. I remember I obsessed a lo- like low key, like when I was going into the field for the very first time. I was I was pretty young at the time. I was like, "What if they ask if I believe in ghosts? What am I supposed to say?" And I was so scared. Like I was like, "If I say yes, I, that's that's putting me in one box. If I say no, they might think I'm hostile." And so I tr- I decided to be honest. I was like, "I'm pretty ambivalent. And I don't know if I actually care. Like I don't know if that matters to me." And I was expecting. that. Sounds like,
0: "That means you'd fit right in."
1: Yes, exactly. they were like great. Same. I was like, "Oh, okay." So yeah, it was like a funny way in which my own subjectivity as you know a 21st century cultural anthropologist it was very seamless.
0: One of the things that I found fascinating when I was reading both of these papers was that there did seem to be a suspension of this doubt in the moment mm-hmm. when they're in the investigation. And it wasn't just a suspension of the doubt, but you make this clear dichotomy between, you know, the kind of the techie investigators and the mediums. I'll give you an example. You mentioned a fireplace that's being looked at, and there's the techie investigator looking for electromagnetic radiation, and then the medium who's describing what's happening. And you mentioned that the techie is rolling their eyes at what the medium's saying until they start getting interesting readings. And then they're both in it together. But then afterwards, they're both kind of dismissive of each other again, and they both go back into doubt. But in that moment, the doubt seems to fall away, as does their antagonism towards each other and i i thought that was really interesting
1: yeah i would see that a lot at first i just thought these groups were really gossipy like like people would be like oh do you know so and so they're not trustworthy they they're you know and make these kind of silly faces about them and i was like oh people are just kind of gossips okay i mean I like gossip. I'll go for this. I didn't quite get the productive function it had. And yeah, it's essentially this, right? It's, 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 it's layering in a frame of skepticism about just about everybody, right? Like, is that a trustworthy person? Is that a trustworthy witness? Is that a trustworthy interpreter of scientific knowledge? Everyone is kind of prey to these questions, these doubts. And yeah, like there would be these amazing, weird, interesting moments, like where if you zoomed in on them, you'd be like, wow, they've found evidence, they're convinced. But then in the aftermath, it would fall to recriminations. And sometimes that would happen between two people. It would also happen with individuals, like one of my one of my closer interlocutors. I remember this. And I don't know if I told you the story the last time. I apologize if I did. But for me, it was like a moment where I started to really like get what was happening. I couldn't go to an investigation because I was, I think I had a cold. And he texted me from like like three o'clock in the morning. He's like, we have to, to, you have to come to see me tomorrow. We have to talk about this. And by the time I got to him, he's like, oh yeah, it was just, you know, like the the night of, he was like, yeah, I saw a ghost. It walked. I saw all these things. By the next day, he was like, no, no, that I just in the moment, I was convinced in the moment, but I didn't do anything. I didn't didn't try to document it and do any of the things I would need to do. And so like this kind of tension could happen between like the two kind of schools, like the techies and like the more like medium types, but it could also just happen from within one person. And I was so intrigued by that. Well,
0: you mentioned in the Between Electricity and Spirit paper that you were present when somebody began to have some experiences and suddenly the people who had been really careful about taking measurements lost track of that because they were so wrapped up in what was happening. It it makes me think of two things. It makes me think of a lot of anthropological descriptions of certain types of religious ceremonies. Uh I've never been a particularly religious person. So this is something I, I recognize aspects of it from that. But the other thing it made me think of though, is I play music with other people and there are times when you'll have some personality conflicts or what have you, but when you start playing that'll intensify until everybody's like in it together. You're all in sync. And then suddenly everybody gets along at least through that piece of music.
1: I love that connection. I I would never have thought of that with musicians. That's really interesting.
0: It's like everything around you fades away. You even forget what your hands are doing because that doesn't matter. What matters is the sound that you're creating. And it seemed like maybe a similar sort of thing happening here where The psychic and the techie are so caught up in the moment that their differences don't matter. Or in the other case, when the person's having the experience and everybody's getting drawn in, even though they're there to try to record information, the recording seems to fade away in the importance of the moment.
1: Yeah, I think that that definitely happens. Right. And I mean, at at the core, right, if you're someone who wants to go on paranormal investigations, if you want to be a paranormal investigator, I think for most people like that moment of potential contact with something extraordinary is genuinely really thrilling. It's something desirable. It's something you want, even if you have complicated philosophical, epistemological thoughts about it the moment itself is really exciting and like even as someone who's i wasn't there for those purposes but like when i was in moments where a medium would really be kind of getting into it i remember i was in the pub in nottingham and nottingham's on top of a whole big cave network Hmm. yeah i I did not know that and there
0: neither did i that's interesting
1: yeah and i think it was the old trip to jerusalem so it was kind of like a grunt it was at the time i don't know maybe it's a great pub now it was a little grungy i think they had like played rock music upstairs at night but you would do ghost hunts in the basement and like it was pitch black i think there was salt in the caves. These caves that like you go down there, they're pitch black. They're there are all of these stories about things that have happened, like criminals, murders satanic rituals the whole range of things and you go down there and they turn the lights off and it's like a kind of complicated place to do an investigation because it's it's so dark and you can't really divide up into rooms the way you normally do and I was down there once with someone who I knew a little bit who was becoming a medium he was identifying increasingly as a medium and he just kind of got full-on possessed in the caves like he was just roaring and like banging on things and it was an incredibly dramatic experience and it was like a little scary honestly even as someone who's like I'm like I'm just here taking my notes in the dark but you're like really engrossed by it right like it's an engrossing experience and when we went upstairs the investigators knew better you know they like in the moment they were like one of them was like gripping my arm because it was so intense but once we got upstairs she was like rolling her eyes she's like he's, in, he's not. I don't trust him for a second um but in the moment you're so you're like oh could this possibly be like is this actually something like what is this it was such an extraordinary experience in so many ways there's something thrilling about that like for folks it's an it's an extraordinary experience of a sort I don't <laughs> does that make sense
0: yeah it, well, I'm curious, do you get the impression that, for example, the person who was clearly very emotionally hit by it when it happened but was dismissive of it later, was her dismissing of it later, do you think genuine or do you think it might have been a defense after the fact or was it maybe more a more complicated thing than that?
1: I think it's pretty genuine, right? And it comes okay. from, again, like this place of gossip. She's like, I don't know if I trust him. I, she's like, I think he likes attention. I think that's a man who likes attention. Like, I don't know that I could trust his motives. I don't know that I trust him. Like, I think he is the kind of person who would go into a blackened cave and just start making noise and making a scene of himself. And I don't know if that's fair. I I, I knew the man a little bit and I'd interviewed him a few times, but for him, it was genuine. Like, he was like, yeah, it happened. I don't know what it means. And like, he, like, he had a lot of questions himself. But mm-hmm. like, for her, it was like, it was grounded in like a critique of him, like that he was not trustworthy, that she didn't know if he could really be counted on. And like, that's kind of a liberating critique in a way, right? Because it doesn't discount the possibility that for someone that could be real, but just that in that moment for him, it wasn't.
0: Which it seems like it could also be kind of a self-reinforcing thing where if he has these experiences, be they genuine or not, but they cause people to think of him as being, you know, overly dramatic then him continuing to have the experiences would feed that, even if the experiences are actually genuine.
1: Absolutely. And I think I, I have a paper about this that I've not tried to publish, but I, I should. There was no winning if you were a medium. There was nothing you could do that would be like a reliable presentation of information in this community. In other communities, There's ton, there are tons of pathways to that. For people who genuinely self-identified as mediums, not someone who would like pick something up on a ghost hunt once or twice, but like, who were like, yeah, I'm a medium. I'm good at this. I can talk to people for you. They like groups would burn out on them with some frequency. Like they'd be like, oh, she's, you know, she like, she likes the attention too much or he, that would be a big critique. Like essentially like almost that they're narcissists. The critiques of mediums were, they ran the gamut from like, they're mentally ill to like they're narcissists. I wouldn't have wanted to be a medium working in those communities. Like there's-
0: well- it's interesting because this is a, another place where the stereotypes you find in the skeptic community of paranormal investigators break down because there's this assumption that I'd run into routinely of, oh, well, they'll have somebody come out who will claim to be a medium and they just believe everything the medium says. And that's clearly not true.
1: No, Oh my goodness. No. Like with mediums, the critiques, you know, like there were behavioral ones like, oh, is, is she a narcissist? Is he mentally unwell? then there were content ones like did did so-and-so google the site before we got here the the information's too good she clearly googled it or this is too vague like she's just making it up oh there's a little boy who died where isn't that true right like there was Mm -hmm. if you were too specific you lost if you were too vague you lost if you were too dramatic and you're telling you weren't trustworthy if you were too staid you were also not trustworthy like it was I've seen a lot of skeptics worry a lot about things like cold reading and hot reading and things like that. That mattered less since the the people who were being communicated with were dead and not known to the community. And among investigators, folks would like you know they would enjoy going to see mediums perform, stage mediums. Like I think I think Derek Akora, when he was still Mm -hmm. alive, was a popular one. But they would go and then they'd go make fun of the person afterward. They'd be like, "Oh, this is why it was fake." They try to identify the fault lines in the performance, almost as like the like the real fun of it almost.
0: It's sort of like when you listen to political talk radio with friends and then you. Take it apart afterwards, like, and here's where he was just trying to manipulate you, and here's where he's just making crap up.
1: Totally. I went to one with them, and in the drive home, it was just like people just were like tearing the person apart, and that was the like fun of it.
0: That actually does sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah,
1: like super mean, but fun.
0: So because listeners aren't privy to everything I do when I'm not here recording. Uh, We did have an email exchange before this, and you'd mentioned in that you've worked with psychics in New York City and that they don't have this type of doubt.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that's so interesting to me about the kind of doubt paranormal investigators have is how I think, in some ways, like like you were saying with the skeptics, how rare it is to be a skeptic, right? How rare that orientation to the world is. That rareness also intrigues me about the paranormal investigators. Across the world, people believe in all order of extraordinary entities, aliens, gods, ans- like all of it, right? And you can study... Study how those ties get produced, and so yeah, like to me, when I was studying the, like the paranormal investigators, the, the ways in which those failed to get produced was the interesting thing. Since I've ended that project, I've been doing some work with people in New York City who are learning to become psychics, and it's really interesting, right? Like I, I'm so used to people who are full of doubt, full of like self recrimination, skepticism for other folks that is very interestingly absent in the work I've been doing. And so I've been participating in, you know, like classes where you learn to become a psychic and things like that. It's really interesting, right? Like they're primarily populated by women of my age or a little bit younger, like so 30s, 40s, who want to do this as part of their spiritual practice. For most of them, like maybe they dabble in some kind of paid psychical work, but for most it's like, you know, a personal meaningfulness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I don't know if, if you've read Tanya Lerman, like Persuasion of the Witch's Craft or When God Talks Back, but she does a lot of really great work charting how belief in non-material entities can become come into being essentially like in particular her idea of the interpretive drift where um practice belief and epistemology come together to like you know make christian god real to evangelicals or to make magic real to english witches what she argued is very much present for the psychics right it's this twinning it's this twining together of those three things but what's interesting to me about it is how, untrou- not untroubled, like, because I don't want to, I don't want to create a picture of them that, for instance, folks like skeptics might find affirming, but how engagement with these things isn't really about reality. Like it's, it's not really about the realness of chakras, the realness of insights. It's about personal growth almost. And like using all of these things as almost like forms of self-actualization, self-development and like this kind of new age quest for meaningfulness and wholeness in life. That's the biggest thing I've, I've seen in this. For instance, a paper I gave last summer um, had to do with the police of coincidence and in, um, in the world of psychics. So one of the things I see like they're, Many of the people I'm working with, one of them, I met her in one of these classes and she's she is a professor of STEM at a school in New York City. So she's Mm -hmm. in her real life a mechanical engineer. But she's going to these because she's interested in it and she wants to grow. And, you know, she's like, I'm pretty skeptical of the idea that the body has chakras, the idea of energy coming out of the body. But what I really like are the insights that I generate about myself if I'm doing this work or if someone gives me a tarot reading. Like
0: it reminds me of the fact that one of the founders of NASA's jet propulsion laboratory was Jack Parsons, who was actively involved in psychic research and magic and was actually adherent of Alistair Crowley's religion. The crossover between science and in some cases, magical thinking Even though in a lot of ways they're at odds, they seem to attract some of the same people.
1: Yeah, it's really, really true. And so for this woman, one of the things we've talked a lot about is coincidence, right? Like In in secular life in the US, the West, you're supposed to accept coincidence exists, right? So, you know, if your dog dies and you got splashed by a puddle the same day, there's no causal link there, right? Like you shouldn't dwell. To dwell too much on those two things that happened in one day is cognitive bias. It's a cognitive fallacy. And if you look globally, right, at like a lot of studies of witchcraft, it's a rational thing. It's a way of explaining things that are coincidental, a way of explaining things that don't have any kind of natural explanation, and one of the things that she she and I have talked a lot about in our conversations, and I've talked about with other women who are doing this work, is how frustrating lack of like like this emphasis, like this this idea that everything has to be coincidental, that there can be no deeper meaning, is, and how undoing that work is really empowering. So one of the things you learn in these psychic psychic classes is like if if, the, if something happens in your mind, if a thought pops into your mind don't treat it as a coincidence treat it as meaningful treat accept that there is meaningfulness to it accept that it's something to interpret and kind of grapple with so she was talking about like how she walked into a bar to go on a first date and like a song that she considers to be her bad luck song was playing and she met the guy she was going to go on a date with and got kind of a vibe she didn't like and she was like okay I'm, these are 2 i'm taking this seriously and she ended the date and left and for her, she found that really empowering. She's like, I don't think he was like a serial killer or anything, but maybe I saved myself a series of bad dates. Maybe I, well, like feeling like empowered to act on those things that we're, we're supposed to see as disconnected almost. So it's like a way of re- or learning like meaningfulness almost in the world. That's one of the kinds of things I'm, I'm kind of charting as, as I do this work.
0: Well, it makes me think about over the years, I've had people decide they were going to give me tarot readings. And it was fascinating. The first time it happened, the person did it and I was, I was blown away. It's like, Oh, this person's nailed me. And then I watched them do it with somebody else. Like, well, hold on. That describes me too. And then the next person, same thing. Mm -hmm. And at the time that led me to just dismiss it. And, you know, I would say I still don't see tarot readings as being factual, but one thing that I've come to appreciate is that if you get something like that and it does make you think about aspects of your life, that could still have a profound effect on how you, you know, kind of interact with those facets of your life, even if you discount the mystical meaning of tarot, maybe, yeah, it it might be the same thing as saying, okay, here's my list of traits I want to think about, and I'm going to roll a die to see which one I do today. You don't have to think it's factual for it to still become meaningful.
1: Yeah. And that emphasis on meaningfulness, part of what's been so interesting about attending these classes and talking to folks in this community is this critique they have of sort of like the lack of meaningfulness, the idea that modern life refuses meaning almost. And I don't know if I agree with them about that for what it's worth. I'm not espousing that, but I'm interested in how they try to like foster practices to essentially create space for meaningfulness for themselves. I think that's really interesting. Like, like the story about going into the bar, like that, like, like so many of the women in these groups have so many stories, like essentially trusting themselves or their senses more as a result of this kind of work. Just interesting.
0: Well, we talked briefly earlier about the book, The Myth of Disenchantment, and one of the things that comes out very clearly in that is that the majority of the people up until recent decades who talked about the disenchanted world, they didn't think it was a good thing, and they were probably talking more about their own experiences than any objective thing that had actually happened, but they felt like the world had become disenchanted and therefore less meaningful and they viewed that as something bad and wanted to get back to something more enchanted and therefore meaningful.
1: It's such an interesting thing. Charles Taylor also talks about it and I'm intrigued by his philosophy in many ways. But like one of the things he argues is that we have this like almost drive for wholeness and like, you know, secularization has kind of taken that away from us in ways that are hard for us and challenging for us. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's interesting.
0: It, it does make me wonder if people have always felt like things were less meaningful now than they used to be.
1: I would believe that. That seems very, very believable to me.
0: The next generation coming up is always worse than anybody who's ever lived before, and the past was always more meaningful than the now. It's like the sort of thing that echoes throughout history.
1: Yeah, like nostalgia for like a, a past that probably didn't exist kind of thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, we've got through... The questions, not necessarily in order that you had uh, suggested. I've got the questions I had written down on the papers answered. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about?
1: No, I, I, this has been such a good conversation. I hope I hope I've made sense as always.
0: No, you did. Okay. I, I will say, I think that you uh, may discount your ability to talk about your subject, <laughs> both here and when I've heard you interviewed elsewhere, you come across as somebody who really does know what you're talking about. That's so
1: that's very comforting because I'm like, oh God, what am I saying? <laughs>
0: Well, I'm very grateful to you for uh, being willing to take part. So thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's g-h-o-s-t-h-r-o-p-o-l-o-g-y at gmail. You can find more at kmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link, and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. (laughs)
1: Okay. <laughs>